Welcome to PS Editor's Podcast, where we engage our contributors on the pressing and often complex issues they address in their commentaries. I'm Greg Bruno, an associate editor at Project Syndicate in Prague. Today, we're heading to Madrid. There seems to be no end to political upheaval in the world's democracies, from the election of Donald Trump in the United States and Brexit in Britain, to the rise of the far right in Germany, Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, and elsewhere in the European Union. Populist politicians have made impressive gains. For many voters, economic insecurity and a deep sense of grievance have led to a wholesale rejection of established elites. These voters are opting for fresh blood, buying the promises of leaders who vow to make their countries great again, including by helping citizens pay their bills again. My guest today has a lot to say on this topic. Manuel Muniz, Dean of the IE School of International Relations in Madrid and Senior Associate at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, has explored the links between productivity, wages, and political upheaval. And he has a few ideas about how to address today's turmoil. Let's give him a call. Hi, Manuel. Thanks for joining us today at PS Editor's Podcast. Hi, Greg. Nice to be with you. So let's get right to it. You've written extensively on the links between productivity, unemployment, wages, and politics. But before we discuss how all of this is driving what you call the world's political convulsions, let's get the economics out of the way. Mm -hmm. What factors account for the disconnect between the productivity gains uh, and wage growth that you've identified in recent years? I think the fundamental factor there is um, technology, uh, because technology is enabling companies uh, around the world to continue to increase their productivity without uh, remunerating their employees better or employing more people. So I think the fundamental driver of this um, is tech and the impact that tech is having on that relationship between uh, between productivity, work, uh, and compensation in general, uh, wages in particular. And and what's the, the, the structural issue that you've identified in terms of what's happening to productivity with technology uh, and how wages are just not getting down or trickling down uh, to those salaries? Yeah, so I mean, basically, uh, some of us have referred to this as a breach of our social contract, because if you think about it, uh, if you if you summarize, if you... Uh, phrase our economic model in its simplest form. Basically, what that model says is with gains in productivity, that, that eventually trickles down uh, through wages and compensation to a middle class, feeds, sustains a middle class uh, of labor income earners. Uh, what we've seen in the US since the 1970s is actually that process not working in the way that it had before. So we've seen that decoupling of productivity and compensation. And I think that is a very significant development because it undo, it erodes the central redistributive role uh, that wages have played uh, for the last 150 to 200 years. So the implications of that are massive. And uh, I think the most fundamental implication is that it has produced an erosion of the middle, of the middle class and of uh, labor income earners. Uh, and that is fueling, and this is the space where I work uh, most intensely, is the political economy of all of these developments. And my whole thesis is this is the ultimate driver uh, of the populist up upheaval that we're living in the West because it's producing a great deal uh, of insecurity and a polarization of the political spectrum. 
Yeah, so I certainly want to talk about the politics and the rise of what, of, of what you and others have referred to as the precariat. But before we do, just real quickly on the productivity question, there are different theories as to the productivity problem. You know, some see the stagnant average productivity growth and argue that it's because the, all the big inventions have already been taken care of, uh, like the steam engine. Um, others say that cutting-edge technologies, the impacts haven't fully been felt, um, or because there's simply a lack of competition um, between these, these big companies, these big tech companies um, uh, that aren't fueling innovation. What, what's your take on that productivity problem? So, so th there's, there's, another, um, there's another very interesting piece of data uh, that has been uh, produced by the OECD on where productivity growth is taking place, whether it's taking place or not. So there's a big debate, of course, that you guys know of about whether productivity is actually growing in the aggregate or not, uh, whether our measurement of productivity is correct or not. Uh, but using current measurements, uh, if you break down productivity growth by companies, and I mentioned this in the in the project syndicate piece very briefly, uh, you find that frontier companies, which are the companies that have grown in terms of productivity the most over the last 10 years, saw a 30% increase in productivity over that period. So there is still a very significant productivity growth, but it's only happening in the front in frontier firms uh, that are very effective at investing precisely in technology and that benefit also. Uh, from factors brought about by technology like network effects and others. So productivity growth is just occurring on the frontier uh, of the business world, and it's not the diffusion of those productivity gains to the broader economy uh, are simply not working. My thesis, again, is this is happening because of technology, both issues, but particularly the concentration of, of productivity growth on the frontier. So the general argument that the technological advancements that we've seen over the last few decades are not leading to productivity growth is actually refuted by the fact that we have seen productivity growth is just occurring on the frontier. So that polarization of productivity growth is another manifestation of the incidence of technology on this uh, dynamic between productivity, growth, wages, et cetera, et cetera. And that productivity growth is having uh, significant impacts uh, socially, and that's where your thesis moves into the political realm. Um, uh, you know, so let's talk a little bit about the precariat, the rise of, of the hollowing of the middle, I suppose, is, is one way you've referred to it, um, uh, and this breakdown of, this, of the you know, modern capitalism's social contract in its most basic form. Talk a little bit more about what that contract is and why, in your view, it needs to be rewritten, and how, how do we even begin to do so? So, you know, the, the, the precariat is this emerging class of people that is not just exclusively the unemployed, but also the underemployed and the subemployed. These are people that are working but would like to work more or people that are working in jobs that require much less training or formal education that they, than, than, than the holders of the job currently have. It also includes the people that are precariously employed or the working poor. These are people that are working. They figure fully, you know, they're captured fully by our unemployment, by our employment statistics, but they still live precariously. So it, it is this much larger group that actually our unemployment data does not capture. And there was a fascinating poll done right after uh, the elections in the U.S. where uh, they looked at counties uh, with high, high levels of unemployment and whether they had voted for Hillary or for Trump. And basically, these counties had voted 50-50. So unemployment doesn't tell you much about political behavior, at least in the U.S. and in these counties. But then they went back and they looked at counties with high degrees, or high percentages of routine jobs. These are repetitive jobs that are either in high risk of automation or jobs that are already suffering the downward pressure 
on salaries that automation brings because automation first uh, produces downward pressure on salaries and then outright unemployment. But for a period of time, it produces a great deal of precariousness before you actually do away uh, with the jobs themselves. In those counties, Trump won by a margin of over 35 percentage points on average. So there's a, there's a strong correlation between uh, these sorts of jobs the belonging to this community, um, new economic class that uh, you were mentioning before, the precariat and actually voting for some of these political uh, movements. So the, the evidence is piling up that uh, one of the big drivers of political behavior, unsurprisingly, is actually uh, the incidence of all of these trends, tech and others, on people's expectations about the future and others. Uh, and the data is actually quite overwhelming. I mean, it's uh, uh, you have you know 90% of households in Italy over the last uh, 10 to 15 years with flat or falling real market income. Uh, you have the Rachetti data, for example, on uh, intergenerational economic stagnation in the U.S. You know he calculated this is an academic at Stanford, and he uh, he was given access to a very big uh, fiscal database in the U.S. and he calculated the probability of uh, people earning more than their parents throughout their lifetime. And Americans born in the 40s had a probability of over 90%. Americans born in the 80s, that probability was down to 50%. So this is sort of the death of the American dream of this idea that you're going to prosper and do better than the preceding generation. Uh, so again, you know, the, the, the data is piling up that this erosion is actually occurring, that it's occurring particularly in the middle, and that what's gone out of whack is this relationship between productivity, jobs, income. Uh, that's where the metal meets the meat. You know, that's that's the the area where I would focus uh, most of the work, most of my research work, and definitely most of the policy uh, emphasis moving forward. Yeah, I think what's really fascinating is the degree to which the technological uh, disruption is taking place, and what what types of jobs are being affected. I think most unaware people might think of manufacturing line and robots and building of a car but really we're talking about in many ways some white-collar jobs uh, accounting um, uh, invoicing professions that that in the past have taken a degree of skill but all of a sudden a computer code can take that away quite quickly yeah yeah i think i think that's what makes this iteration of job disruption different. It's the nature, it's the speed and the nature of the work that is being automated. So no longer are we automating a basically animal or human physical force, uh, but we're automating processing capacity. So we're making brains redundant. And I think that's what makes this instance different. And I think people that take projections from previous instances and say, well, you know, new job categories are going to emerge. We'll be fine. It'll take some time, but we'll be fine. I think that's a bold uh, assertion uh, because of the nature of this substitution. And here there are two theses, right? Uh, one is we're going to see a great deal of automation no matter what, and completely new job categories are going to have to emerge that are going to be very detached from what we know as the production of goods and services. And that, you know, that's the Oxford Martin School study that was very widely cited, about 50%, uh, almost 50% of current jobs in risk of computerization in the next two decades, et cetera, et cetera. The other thesis for which, by the way, we have also very abundant evidence is that irrespective of what happens to jobs further down the line, we know right now that a large proportion of our jobs are suffering a big transformation and are suffer and are being automated in, in, in 
certain percentages, right? It's not in 10, 15, 20 years automation of the, you know, the, the profession of drivers. It's something we know right now. And we're really failing at reducing the costs, uh, the transition costs to those new jobs, uh, because we know, for example, in the EU, this is the latest data that I've seen. There are about 2 million jobs that cannot be filled because we cannot train people with the right skills for those jobs. So irrespective of your assessment of how many are going to be automated, we could be doing a much better job now at training people for the jobs that we currently have, even though they might be far less in number than the ones that we had in the past. So moving into the political realm a bit for a moment, the it strikes me as, as interesting or surprising that the politicians who are promising solutions to fixing these structural challenges putting people back to work, putting money back into their pockets, are billionaires um, like Trump or here in the Czech Republic, Andrei Babish, whose party just won the recent Czech election. Why do so many disenfranchised voters support billionaires? Well, I think they're supporting outsiders from the system. Uh, in these two cases, they happen to be billionaires in France, it wasn't a billionaire, but it was an outsider, you know, uh, so it, it, I think the feature here is the anti-elitism and the anti-systemic sentiment, uh, who manages to grab that flag and run with it and do well. Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, directly related to their economic status. I think in the US and in the Czech Republic, it was useful for these people to be billionaires for various reasons. Uh, in the case of the US to be a very well known public character and others. But I think that what's really important is that they were outsiders and they they ran on platforms to disrupt uh, the established uh, system. Um, and, and I think that's what's significant. What worries me, though, is, OK, if 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 our if the diagnosis I've just laid out is correct and this decoupling is produced indeed by tech and the cause of what we're living is indeed the erosion of the role of wages as a redistributive mechanism from capital to labor, then the solution is extremely complex because then it's not about managing immigration. It's not about, you know, uh, creating, uh, educating people for exclusively new kinds of jobs. No, I mean, the, the issue is far more systemic and structural. And that's where you get into the debate of how does that new social contract look? And we're only at the beginning of the debate. So I was part of a group of people that did a, a policy brief for the G20 on this. And I think it was one of the first documents, and as, and as such, probably a very imperfect document, uh, as to what sort of things could we do here. And um, basically, we came up with four areas of action. Uh, one was, as I was saying before, uh, a, a very big change in the way we are educating people. Again, we don't know if these jobs are going to be enough to substitute for the ones we destroy, but we know there's going to be some job creation. And the two axes are basically quantitative skills, maths, engineering, programming, and social skills. Uh, there's a whole thesis now about this new economy of empathy emerging. So there are going to be jobs. People are going to be working on things that essentially uh, entail managing other people's feelings, emotions, and expectations. So, uh, you know, if, if you manage to combine these skills, we know there has been job growth in the categories that combine those skills. So why not train people in those spaces? That, as an as an educator, I can tell you that entails changing the pedagogy a great deal. You know, you have to train, you have to teach uh, transfer, uh, transferable skills and also uh, and different abilities uh, to manage people and others. So that's one. Number two is it entails a big change in the taxation system because our states 
are highly dependent on taxation over labor income. So if you look at the major sources of revenue of most, most advanced states around the world, it's highly dependent on labor taxation, income, uh, income tax and others. And actually, if, if our thesis is right, you've had this erosion of labor income earners. And at the same time, because of the crisis and its aftermath, what we've done is we've piled taxes precisely on these collectives. So people that might already be, uh, should be the beneficiaries of redistributive policies are actually the ones that are funding uh, the funding challenges faced by our states. So a shift of labor to capital taxation, I think, is almost unavoidable. I mean, there's this debate about taxing robots or not. I'm not sure whether we should tax robots or algorithms. I think capital tax uh, in terms of corporate tax and capital gains tax and others already captures uh, the effects of robots and algorithms on the PNL of companies, but some form of rebalancing of the taxation towards capital should take place. That can be done through capital tax, like PKT has suggested, a global tax on capital, or it could be done through a, what is called the participatory route, which is setting up uh, sovereign wealth funds and public venture capital funds and providing the state with small stakeholdings in, co in corporates uh, around the world and therefore traction over capital uh, income. Third transformation on redistributive mechanisms. I just don't see how these trends are sustainable without introducing some new mechanism of redistribution from capital to, uh, to labor. Uh, that can be a universal basic income. Actually, our evidence of, of how that works is not very positive. Uh, or it can be negative income taxes or conditional cash transfers or something. Uh, but something, you know, somebody uh, uh, with, uh, you know, better pay than me and smarter has to come up with something. Uh, but we have very few pilot programs or uh, very little evidence about how these things actually work and play out. And the fourth and last, and I'll, and I'll on, the, on this, is uh, the, the role of the private sector needs to be rethought quite deeply because that decoupling of productivity and wages, one of the things it does is it renders insufficient the principle that corporates can focus exclusively on maximizing profits and shareholder value. Because what it means is that if all of these corporates do that, they end up producing an aggregate consequence, which is the run of the middle and political radicalization, and ultimately a real threat to the order on which they've built their prosperity. So a new redefinition of sustainability of business, I think, has to emerge. Uh, a new definition of business stakeholders that goes beyond shareholders, I think, has to emerge. These are very complex issues, and there are huge collective action problems here uh, about implementing it. But but I, I, when I think about this problem, I see these four big axes of action uh, where things could be done to improve a lot uh, the situation for you know the average per, the average worker uh, in the U.S. and Europe. Right. Well, that's a very nice prescriptive analysis of what needs to happen. One of those, as you're speaking. Uh, the the capitalization tax, the, the the reformulation of how we tax large companies goes back to your your original point about the frontier firms, the the the, the richest five percent or the biggest five percent that control yep. the highest stakes. When we identify those trends and then we look at what's happening with with rich industry or politicians um, and what in in many places the rich seem to be doing in terms of removing themselves from the system and gating themselves away. In, in many instances, or many analysis, we'll look at what's happening in Catalonia uh, in their bid for independence is something that's similar in that regard, the wealthy wanting to run. Uh, if, if that's what's happening politically, how do we solve, or is it even possible to solve, some of the, uh, the challenges that you're identifying? 
I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. And I, it, there, there's also, by the way, a geographic dimension to this. So uh, if you look at where those frontier firms where productivity growth is occurring are located, uh, most of them are actually in the U.S. and in China. Uh, so the rest of the world has seen very little concentration of this, these sorts of firms. So combine that piece of data with this issue of the need to rebalance taxation towards capital, and you have a major funding problem for states where innovation is not taking place and states that have been that have fallen behind on that innovation process. Right. So these are going to be concentrated in various places. You're going to be have a very hard time taxing companies uh, that are based uh, in, in other countries. Maybe you can tax them on the basis of activity or others. That's why for me, uh, the participatory route is far more interesting. If, my point is, the di if the diagnosis is correct, we should be thinking about how we democratize uh, capital and also deepen financial markets uh, rather than going down the taxation route, which I think is going to be difficult, not just because of the geographic reason, but for others as well. So, you know, it, it's just I, I, if we don't get the governance of the economics right, all of these other issues are going to pop up and explode in different places. And the aggregate consequence of this, I think, is going to be the erosion of the liberal order that was established from the Second World War to today. And that includes open and porous borders, regional integration, global trade, et cetera, et cetera, cosmopolitanism, you know, all yeah. of these things. Yeah. So for me, these things are very much connected. And that's why I work on this issue, because I think this is urgent. The political window to solve this is also closing because the people that are elected uh, by the precarious and the disenfranchised and the you know the abandoned I mean this large collective um, are going to implement policies that I doubt very much will benefit those people. So my concern is what comes after Trump, what comes after Syriza, what comes after the Movimento Cinque Stelle in Italy. That is my real concern, and what we're seeing in the polls uh, and in surveys is that the support for democracy as a system of government is falling, particularly among the young in our societies. So that, for me, is the ultimate consequence of all of this. It begins as anti-elitism and anti-systemic sentiment. It ends in outright anti-democratic sentiment and the questioning of the overarching, basically legal and political architecture under which we live, right? So so I think we, we have a chance to solve this uh, in the next three, four electoral cycles. But I think if we keep on getting this wrong for too long, then I think the fracture will get far more serious. Well, I think that's a, a nice place to end. It's a, a, a nice wrap of the problem, the implication, and possible solutions. So that was really enlightening. Thank you very much for your time today, Manuel. No, thank you for, thank, thank you for your time. I hope your listeners like it. That was Manuel Muniz with a timely reminder that rising incomes are key to fostering democratic institutions, while falling or stagnant incomes tend to do the opposite. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.